Hi, this is Zach Hapenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity. At Rise 48, we've successfully purchased 38 different properties worth over $1.5 billion worth of real estate and gone full cycle and sold 11 different properties, drastically exceeding projections for our investors. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas markets, then we're the group for you. To learn more about investing with us, visit our website at rise48equity.com and set up a call with me. Thank you. I'm a foodie. I like to eat out uh, on occasion, nice restaurants. I like my wine. Um, And what I've seen over the last year or so is that for the first time in many years, I have sticker shock from, from food costs. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. This is MC Lobsher from Cashflow Ninja, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Chad Ackerman. Today, we're doing a little different spin from our normal passive investing with left field investors. Um, today, we're doing a focus on something we're going to try to kick around for a little while. I'm very pleased and excited to have our guest, Jay Scott, with us today. Jay, welcome. Thank you for coming on the podcast with us and uh, going through this new kind of venture we're trying out. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Chad. Thrilled sure to be thing. here. Sure thing. So the thing we're going to try out, we thought uh, we'd love to have Jay. Jay's agreed to come on quarterly with us and kind of talk through similar questions each quarter uh, so we can kind of trend what's going on in the, the market, the economy, the world of investing and spin it back to the LP investor to help uh, LPs think about it. That's most of our audience. Think about what's going on in the world at the current time and how that might affect their investing and so forth. So Jay, again, welcome. We're excited to try this out. Appreciate having you come on and uh, go through this with us. Absolutely. Again, thank you. Yeah. So if people aren't familiar with Jay, Jay's the co-owner of Bar Down Investments. He's an author of several books, as you can see behind him too. Co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Drunk Real Estate, which you should definitely check out. And reason why we also invited Jay is Jay is an infielder. We're here with left field investors. So we thank you for that also. But with that, we're going to kick into kind of the topic to bring you in. Uh, first and foremost, we thought we'd just throw out kind of general economic outlook and to ask you about, I know this is a wide open question. You could take this a million places, kind of just maybe where you're feeling that current trend is in the economy in general, and then maybe we can hit back to how that affects the limited partner investor as well. Yeah, absolutely. So Great. when we look at the economy, I guess there's there's two big ways to look at things. One, we can look through the lens of the data, um, and that kind of gives us an understanding of how things are happening, what's happening at, at a macro level. Um, and then secondly, we kind of look at how are people feeling? And oftentimes the data and the perception are similar. Uh, but in some cases, what we see is, is a very divergent set of, of, of information when you go and look at the macro data that's coming out from the government versus what the people are actually feeling on the ground. And we're in one of those situations now, and, and again, this isn't common, but we're in one of those situations now where public sentiment about the economy is very, very different 
than the data that that's coming out. And so you can, you can argue that, well, maybe the data is wrong. You can argue that maybe the data is right, but, um, but for, there's something else going on that makes people feel that, um, that, that the data is not accurate, but long story short, uh, economic data has been pretty strong for the last couple of years. Um, there was a, there was a blip back in the beginning of 2022 when we started to see some high inflation and, um, and Fed started to get worried. They started to raise interest rates. But for the most part, the big economic data indicators have been pretty strong. GDP has been strong. So just total output of the economy is strong. Jobs data has been strong. We've been at, at historic low um, uh, unemployment. Now, if you dig into that data a little bit, what you find is that while the, the general sentiment around jobs is really good. There's, there's some micro data in there. That's, that's a little bit more concerning. Um, and then obviously inflation is the big one that everybody's been worried about. We had a few months, maybe even a year of, of really bad inflation. Inflation now is still a little bit above what the fed would like it to be, but, but coming down. And so Long story short, from a data perspective, um, everything actually actually looks great. I, I like to say that if you took an economist and, and he's been asleep for the last 10 years and you woke him up this morning and showed him all the data, he'd say, wow, that's a, that's a fantastic economy. Unfortunately, if you ask the average American, the average consumer, the average family, um, the story is, is somewhat different. Um, certainly, there are a lot of people out there that do feel good, that are making a lot of money. Typically, those are the the ones in the, the top 1%, 5%, even 10% of, of socioeconomic classes. Um, but much of, of the, the country is feeling pinched. Um, they feel like the, their spending power has dropped dramatically. So that's the thing with inflation. Um, it's a compounding effect. Um, typically doesn't go down. Now it's not going up as quickly as it was, but the six, eight, nine percent price increases that we were seeing annually over the last couple of years compounded and, and they're kind of staying high. Um, and wages didn't grow at the same rate. And so even though wage, wage growth is outpacing inflation right now, people are making a little bit more money than, than they're losing to inflation. It doesn't make up for the, again, six, seven, eight, nine percent that they were losing, uh, over a couple of years. So, um, so public sentiment is a lot different than the data. And so where are we right now? It, it really depends on who you are and what your current experience is and, and what your current situation is. Well, I, I take your analogy of wake up the economist from 10 years ago and take him out to lunch and, and then ask him how he feels. And this is, this is, you know? and again, I, I hate to use personal experience because I'm one person out of, out of 360 million or however many right. it is. Um, but, um, it is the one thing that, uh, in my life, I'm feeling very differently about now than I was a few years ago. And that's food costs. Um, and I, I'm, I'm a foodie. I like to eat out, uh, on occasion, nice restaurants. I like my wine. Um, and what I've seen over the last year or so is that for the first time in many years, I have sticker shock from, from food costs. And so a lot of people seem to think that that might be the single biggest contributor to this 
kind of divergence between the data and, and perception, simply food costs, because it, it's, it's not like buying a car where you might do it every five years. Um, or if you don't need to do it now, you can put it off for a few more months when you have more money. Food you're buying once a week, twice a week. Um, it's a necessity. You can't not have it. And we're just so exposed to, to the pricing in, in that, that commodity that you, you can't help but notice it several times a week. And so it may be that, that the fact that food costs have been outpacing other inflationary uh, classes over the last couple of years that we're feeling a lot worse about it the, feels the, worse. the yeah, I, than, than the data. Yeah, I think you're spot on. It's, it, I think I've heard you actually say this on your podcast, but it was something I gave no thought to you know, several months ago. And now I see it and it's like, oh my gosh, I had a $25 lunch yesterday that I'm like, holy cow. Like I, I was at a, a market that wasn't like I was out to a nice restaurant or anything. It was like this, it wasn't fast food by any means, but it was uh, nothing that should have cost that much. I did think several months yeah. ago, but here we are. So I can understand your perspective of data saying one thing, but perceptions another What's that? What's that difference? Have we historically seen a lot of this kind of structure that there's kind of a trend of when sentiment catches up to data and, and things will be different or it's all action driven and we just have to wait for things to shift? that perception I, will feel better then. So I've heard a couple of economists speak on this. I've talked to a couple of people that are, that are kind of well entrenched in, in the, the industry of, of economic data. And this is very much an anomaly. Um, what I'm hearing is that, I mean, you have to go back to the last time that we saw a lot of inflation, um, but still a relatively strong economy um, before you, you see the same type of sentiment. And it, it's likely related to the fact that the economy, again, the data is pretty strong, but we're seeing a lot of inflation. The last time we saw that was the, the late 70s, early 80s, where we had high inflation, but we also had booming asset prices. Stock market was doing well. Um, if you look throughout the 70s, housing did really, really well. Um, but we had high inflation. And, and that was the last time that a lot of economists saw this discrepancy again between data and perception, consumer sentiment. Yeah. I mean, you just couldn't buy gas to go anywhere. So you exactly. might as well buy a house and be comfortable at home. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so to bring that to a limited partner investor standpoint, then this sentiment versus data, is the data encouraging to be looking at investments then at this point in time, I would think? even though perception may feel different just because it's maybe more tied to your consumer goods than investment side of things. So, so I'm an LP investor as well. I'm, I'm, I'm a GP. I manage, I manage syndications, multifamily syndications, but I'm also an LP in, in several thousand units. So um, I, I like to think I, I have that perspective as well. And one of the biggest things I've noticed as an LP is um, there were, kind of the, these expected return ranges that we were looking at a couple years ago in the multifamily world, you could expect somewhere in the 14 to 16% uh, uh, internal rate of return, compounded return for, for a, a typical multifamily value add deal. You could expect somewhere in the 18 to 20% um, average annual return, the, the average you should expect on any given year on your investment. And what I would have expected as the uh, as the Fed raised interest rates, um, basically the, the, the thing called the federal funds rate, the, the core interest rate, the short-term interest rate that the Fed controls, we call that the risk-free rate. 
And the reason we call it that is because that's in theory, um, zero risk investment, investing in treasury bonds at that rate. And typically we see, um, returns in other asset classes at some amount over that risk free rate. So how much risk is there in, in real estate? Um, that's going to determine how much higher than the risk free rate you're going to receive if you invest in real estate. And so what you would expect is if the risk free rate, that federal funds rate went from zero percent to, to five or a little over 5% as we saw in the last 18 months, in theory, you should expect that the rates that you're seeing in other asset classes, for example, real estate syndications, to go up not necessarily exactly the same amount, um, but a comparable amount. And what we found is while the federal funds rate went up about 5% over the last 18 months, the typical return in a real estate syndication any, any across all commercial asset classes was about zero. We didn't see returns go up. And so what we're seeing over the last six to 12 months is you can make almost as much money putting your, your money in 10 or five or two year treasury bonds as you can investing in syndications based on, on their performance. And so it's, it's been a, a big shift for LPs who have to decide, do I want to take my money and put it into this somewhat risky asset, um, at the same rates of return? as this zero risk asset, the federal, the, 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 the treasury bonds. And so that for me has been kind of the, the biggest shift in thinking. And I've had a lot of LPs in, in my deals who have said the same, why would I invest in, in something that's going to return um, the same amount two years ago when I can get 5% more in treasury bonds than I could two years ago. And so that's kind of been the big shift in thinking that I've seen from, from limited partners, passive investors over the last couple of years. Um, I think, as we as we move forward, we're going to see interest rates come down a little bit. Um, I think that's going to hopefully highlight the the differential between the risk free rate and and the uh, the the return that we're going to see in real estate a, a little bit better. Um, and it's going to make a little bit more sense for LPs moving forward. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the the struggle that I've seen on the LP side, both for myself and and my my investors in my deals. Now, I, I think that's what we see the sentiment in our forum as well. The discussion that goes on with our, our members. Hey, left fielders, you know, our partner TribeVest, the platform that makes it super easy, safe, and transparent to form a business and invest with partners. I'm in 12 tribes myself. Now, TribeVest is integrated with LFI even more. Every deal webinar has the option to join an open tribe. This means left fielders can invest at lower minimums compared to going directly with the sponsor. It's a great way to diversify and spread your risk. TribeVest handles all of the heavy lifting. All you have to do is join the Open Tribe. Subscribe to LFI emails and sign up for Clubhouse Access to take advantage of deal webinars and Open Tribe. Investing in syndications can be a daunting task. Wiring a large sum of your hard-earned money to someone you talk to on the phone for 30 minutes can certainly be scary. How can you be confident in what you're doing? Steve Sue, one of the founders of LFI, just published a book called Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left-Field Investor, 20 Lessons Learned from 14 Years of Investing in Private Syndications. This is by far the best book I've read on syndication investing. It's an easy-to-read book chock full of great advice from Steve's experience as a passive investor. It is a must read. 
Whether you're a first-time passive investor or a veteran, go to www.leftfieldinvestors.com books and click on the link to Avoiding Rookie Heirs as a Left Field Investor. If you are a passive investor, you got to read this book. It's that cash drag of, you know, it feels like there's something on the horizon that's going to be much more worthwhile. So where can I put my cash today that will allow me to ride that wave for a little while longer? And see, exactly. But it's, you know, it's... It's catching the falling knife a little bit too uh, that you got to be careful of. But if you can take a couple years and and have something a little more risk free, it seems to make a lot more sense. This yeah, day. And, and I think the thing a lot of people don't think about is that um, that risk free rate, that treasury yield rate, that's a real rate today. If I invest in 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 ten year treasuries today, I'm going to get four percent return for the next ten years. Um, the pro forma returns that we see from syndications, basically what operators are telling us that we can expect, that's really hard to determine because the the pro forma return, a lot of that is going to depend not on what's going on in the economy today, unlike treasuries where you can lock in that rate today, but a lot of that's going to depend on where the economy is in three, four, five, seven years when whatever asset you're investing in is sold because the bulk of the money for any syndication deal or any fund um, is going to be made at sale. And so the question isn't what's the risk today? What's the economy doing today? Where are cap rates today? But more where are they going to be and what's the risk in three or five or seven years? And that's really hard to forecast, but there's the potential that things could be much better in three or five or seven years. And so there's, there's, potentially a, a big upside by investing in real estate. Whereas again, treasury yields, you're, you're locked in at that one rate for the next however long. Yeah. Yeah. At least you can plan on it, if you will. Um, great stuff. I'm going to hit you up with one more question. I don't want to keep you too long today, but I hit you up with one more. Um, and I thought maybe we could talk about a topic that maybe you've heard of uh, something that's influencing the economy or investing that's on the horizon that isn't getting a lot of airtime today that maybe people ought to listen to and pay attention. This is your, your chance to play Nostradamus here and <laughs> predict a little bit. I don't, I'm not going to hold you to it. Don't go that far, I guess, on a limb, but yeah, but something that maybe we should start paying attention to a little bit more. Certainly. And I, and when I think of these types of, of, potential changes in in just the the infrastructure of the economy um, I tend to think in short term and long term and and there's a saying that um, that we we tend to, to uh, overestimate the impact of short-term changes and underestimate the impact of long-term changes so for example and I'll, I'll take one of each so on the short-term horizon uh, something a lot of people are talking about is this thing called the bank term funding um, program. So basically a year ago, we had a couple of regional, large regional banks, uh, SVB Bank, Silicon Valley Bank was, was the, the most, uh, notable that had some really big issues. Had, there was a run on the bank and basically the bank was taken into receivership by, by the state of California and the, the, the treasury and, and federal government had to step in and basically say, we're going to ensure that if any banks are in trouble, that we will backstop them. And so they created this, this program where, Basically, banks that were in trouble could borrow money from the federal government at a relatively low rate, um, and and we didn't have to worry about those banks going insolvent or having a run on the bank. And the government said this was going to be a one-year program. It's up 
middle of March, March 20th, 21st, I believe. And so the thought is what happens when the government in middle of March says, okay, we're no longer going to backstop these banks. Is this going to scare consumers? Is there going to be run on these banks? Or are we going to face uh, solvency issues with these banks? I know a lot of people are worried about that. I tend to be less worried about that, but I think it is the biggest thing we should be watching over the next three months. It feels like it could be a blip in the market anyway. If It, it certainly on, could. And yeah, again, yeah. even if it doesn't lead to a major economic event, um, it's certainly going to it's certainly gonna be a, a way on the psyche of yeah. a lot of, of consumers who, who rely on banks to protect their money. Yeah. I feel like the first thing we did when we saw Silicon Valley come up in the news is we ran to our operations agreements with all of our different investments and started looking at what banks they're tied to. Yep. And then just watch the list as it kept coming out for the next several weeks. Uh, who else is in trouble? So absolutely. So there's still something pending out there. I, I yep. would agree with you. Definitely. Yep. And then long term, um, and when I say long term, this could be, I, I think it'll start impacting us this year, but I think this is a, a three, five, 10 year trend um, is just the impact AI is going to have on the economy. Um, AI is likely to be tremendously deflationary, meaning it's going to push the cost of things down. And, and it's going to do that from a couple perspectives. Number one, um, it's going to make labor prices a lot lower. So there are going to be a lot of jobs that are going to be replaced, frankly, with computers. And when you're not having to pay minimum wage or higher to, to labor, laborers or, or employees, um, or knowledge workers, um, your cost to, to build products is going to come down and you're going to pass that savings on to consumers. And, and so there's going to be de deflationary pressures there. Um, and then on the other side of the coin, um, what we're going to see is there are going to be a lot of businesses that sell products where it's now cheaper to build your own in-house. So we talk, there's this industry called SaaS, software as a service, um, where these companies build these, these products that they then sell to hundreds or thousands of businesses. Um, and these businesses pay some fixed amount every month. They might pay $10 a month or $100 a month or $5,000 a month for, for this software, um, because they need it to run their business. Well, it's going to become a lot easier for these businesses to create their own software using AI. AI is actually a great uh, tool for generating new software and creating its uh, new software products. And so we're going to see a lot of the software as a service business go away um, because businesses are going to be able to create their own. They're going to be able to, to build in-house what they were otherwise paying for. And so overall, we're going to see this huge deflationary pressure from AI. Now, everybody thinks deflation. That's, that's great. Prices are going to come down. We need prices to come down. But the reality is one of the biggest and most concerning issues in economics is deflation. And the reason for that is when people see prices starting to come down, in their mind, it isn't, okay, great. I can buy something cheaper today than I could buy it yesterday. I'm going to go out and buy it. Instead, it's, oh, if prices are coming down, it's going to be even cheaper tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. So I'm going to hold off buying it until till next year. And when people stop buying because they think prices are going to be lower in the future, that leads to the snowball effect where basically the economy slows down and we, we can see a big recession or even depression. Um, and so deflation is, is, is a big risk. And I, I think AI is going to displace a lot of workers. And I think this, this deflationary pressure from AI could have a big impact on the economy. And again, probably not a, a major issue for this year or even next year, but um, I think that's going to be talked about a whole lot more over the next five. I, I think you're right. And I think another thing that's going to get a lot of conversation is just sifting through 
the good AI and the bad AI that you know, everybody's going to start promoting. They have AI. It feels like, and yep. who, who has quality versus, you know, just has the marketable ability to say we have it and yep. it's, is there value in it or not? And, you know, it's like any new technology, you're going to go through peaks and valleys of it working, it not working, surviving that. And then to your point, the long-term impact of this and what it will do is going to be very interesting to watch over the next few be. years. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, Jay. I'm going to, I'll, I'll pull us up here. Uh, just to, again, not be mindful of your time, be mindful, not, not be mindful. <laughs> uh, but I really appreciate you coming on. I think this is quality stuff. I'm looking forward to kind of going through these elements again, again, or re latest hot topic when we get through it. Uh, but I think this is really great for you to come on board and hopefully you, uh, enjoyed yourself today anyway, <laughs> as we're picking through the first one. <laughs> Thrilled to be here and looking forward to coming back and, and seeing where we are in a few months. Awesome. Very good. Well, thank you for coming on and thank you people for uh, tuning in and listening in today. Hello, left fielders. At LFI, you know our focus is on networking and education. Mark your calendars because we're going to have a full day of it dedicated to you, our limited partners at the best ever conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City. LFI is opening the BEC with Passive Investing with Left Field Investors, an event focused on passive investors. This will be where insightful content meets passionate, limited partners. If you enjoyed BEC last year and the meetup in Left Field this year, then imagine them both back to back. The Best Ever Conference isn't just any event. It's the premier conference for commercial real estate investors and operators. Your ticket to passive investing with left field investors includes admission to the entire Best Ever Conference from April 9th through the 12th. Join us April 9th where we will have a packed agenda with sessions focused on how to be a successful limited partner led by experienced LPs, top operators, and partners. Then, immerse yourself in the full Best Ever Conference where you will be surrounded by like-minded investors, operators, and industry experts for unparalleled opportunities for learning and networking. The best part, and there are so many, but the best part, you won't find a bigger discount on the regular ticket price than the one you get for being an infielder. That's more content for an exclusive lower price. Register for the event today at leftfieldinvestors.com slash BEC, and we will see you at Passive Investing with Left Field Investors at the BEC. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts would be appreciated. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.